We've been working through the first 12 chapters of Genesis together, and along the way we've been stopping to see how Genesis lays a foundation for Christian thinking in a variety of important areas. Uh, This week we are focusing on biblical anthropology. Anthropology is basically a big word for how we view people. What is it to be human? What makes us valuable? What gives humans purpose? What is their nature? Why do humans do what we do? So today we're looking at biblical anthropology, and uh, the foundation really is in Genesis. So we're going to read two different passages together, one from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, and then we'll also be reading from Genesis 3, verses 9 to 18. So uh, as we hear God's word read to show the place it has in our hearts and in our church, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. And then turn forward to Romans chapter 3. You've probably beat me there. Romans 3, and we'll be reading verses 9 to 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You can be seated as we pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we together... Acknowledge our need for your word to speak into our lives. And so we pray, we ask for the help of your spirit, whether we're in the overflow area or in the auditorium, whether we're listening via live stream or here in the building, we together are uniting our prayers and asking that your spirit would work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Christians simultaneously hold to one of the highest and one of the lowest views of humankind. We have one of the highest views because the Bible teaches that people are made in God's image and therefore deserve values and rights that God has endowed them with. Because of this, Christianity, among the many worldviews, 
has perhaps the best track record through history on, in the area of human rights. It's not to say the record's perfect, it isn't, but compared to peoples and nations that have embraced, for example, polytheism or animism or atheism or Islam or Hinduism, the high view Christians have of the value and the dignity of human life stands tall. If you lose this high view of humankind, our biblical anthropology comes undone. Human life is disregarded. The unique purpose and place of humans within the natural world becomes confused. And then people are left to define for themselves what makes being human worthwhile or valuable. We cannot lose our grip on the high place God sees humans. We are his image bearers on this earth. But at the same time, Christians have the lowest view of humankind. We have this view because the Bible teaches that since Adam's rebellion in Genesis 3, people are born in sin, born with sinful natures. We are born in sin, all of us. We go astray, all of us. We buck against God's rule and authority, all of us. So despite the fact that humans are made in God's image, we hold no naive optimism about the potential or inherent goodness of people. When you read your Bible, any confidence in humans is knocked out of you. Lose this low view of humankind and our biblical anthropology comes undone. Our basic problems are misunderstood. And so the solutions are misidentified. The basis of our hope then becomes misplaced. We cannot lose our grip on the low position the Bible places humans. We are dead in sin, natural born rebels against God. But, keep our grip on both the low view and the high view of humankind, manage to keep these two in tension, and we'll find that our anthropology is firmly rooted in the Bible. It will be healthy and robust. Now, Utah's sermon two weeks ago on the sanctity of human life really dealt extensively with the implications of this high view of humans. And because of that, this sermon this morning will focus more on fleshing out the low view but here at the outset, I wanted to make clear how important it is to maintain both the high view and the low view, made in God's image, yet natural-born sinners. These together form the twin pillars that make up biblical anthropology. But let's dig in in greater depth to the low view. There's basically three views of human nature. People are basically good. People are what they call a tabula rasa. That means a blank slate. We're neutral, just shaped by our environment. Or third, people are basically bad. So which is it? Does it even matter? Well, try asking, does it matter to a parent whose baby won't stop crying? Any parent knows how maddening that is. 
The baby screams and screams and screams. Something's wrong, but I can't fix it. Did she eat too much or not enough? Does she not need to sleep and that's why she's crying? Or she's overtired and needs to cry it out? Is it because her diaper's dirty? It's always the easiest one to assess and fix. Does she have an upset stomach or does something hurt? Does she need to be burped? And the guess and check method is about all we have to work with at that point. And the more guesses that don't check out, the more worked up the baby becomes. And eventually we take them to the doctor and the doctor says it's colic, which is just doctor speak for saying, I have no idea why they're crying either. I remember when I was at that stage as a parent and I just wanted some device I could put on my baby's brain so she could talk and tell me what it was she needed. If only I knew what she needed, I'll do it for you. But your crying isn't answering that question for me, little girl. Our world is like that baby that's crying. For all the goodness and beauty in this world, there is something that cries out in agony. All is not well. There's an ache, a a cry deep in us that longs for the better, more whole world that we know is out there. And if we get it wrong about why the world is crying in agony, we'll be changing a diaper when what's really needed is diaper cream. So that's why it's really important we have a right view of humans. Because a wrong understanding of the problem leads to wrong solutions and then misplaced hopes. So then, which is it biblically? Is man basically good? Is man neutral, a tabula rasa? Is man basically bad? Well, when I began the sermon, I tipped my hand. And I think that's okay, because the Bible is abundantly clear on this from beginning to end. So we heard just before God sent the flood, God's assessment of humanity in Genesis 6-5 when he says, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Unless we think the flood fixed the problem, God gives a parallel assessment of humans right after the flood in chapter 8, verse 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Last week, we read from Isaiah 53, and verse 6 said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. If you read Ephesians 2, which we'll do later, it makes clear that all of us are born dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us are born sons of disobedience, subject to the evil gods of this earth, instead of the true and living God. Romans 5.19, referring back to Genesis 3, says that through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
And if all that wasn't enough to settle it, Romans 3, which we read at the outset here, states, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's called argument by avalanche. None of these passages are stating that man is as bad as we possibly can be. None of these passages are saying that we choose sin every chance we get. But they are all stating that the basic nature of humans is under sin. It is sinful. We are inclined to do wrong, inclined to rebel against God. Indeed, even our noblest actions are laced with sinful motives. I mean, just... Think of something really good that you did recently. Maybe you went out of your way to do a chore that you knew would bless your spouse, your parents, or your roommate. Maybe you were helping a neighbor in a hard time. Think of that good deed and how it was laced with sinful motives. Maybe even just a hint of it. For perhaps there was pride or self-righteousness or attempts to manipulate or hopes for reciprocation. The point is, even our noblest deeds are contaminated. That which is by nature sinful cannot produce truly good fruit. And the biblical evidence is overwhelming on many fronts. I mean, consider some of the most prominent biblical heroes. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Paul, Peter. Three of them were murderers. Three of them were sexually immoral. Peter abandoned Jesus in his greatest time of need, renouncing him with an oath. And that doesn't even include people like Jacob or Miriam or Rahab or Gideon or Mary Magdalene or James. And these are the heroes. In fact, it's rare to find a follower of God in the Bible who's not, in some way, a notorious sinner. And when the heroes are bad, it doesn't bode well for the rest of us. It's actually hard to find a story in the Bible that doesn't feature degenerate man making a true mess of things. So all this is to say the Bible is clear that humans are basically sinful, capable of doing good things, not as bad as we possibly can be, but our natures are bent away from God and toward sin. So why is it important to highlight that? Why spend a whole sermon on it? Isn't kind of a downer message? I think it warrants this kind of attention because it runs so contrary to the prevailing winds of our culture. 
there is a near unanimous consensus that humans are basically good. The way out of our world's problems is to tap into the latent goodness in every boy and girl. To make sure we fill them with the right philosophies, just the right values, to cultivate that goodness. And if we do, voila, our world will be a better place. Fifteen years ago, ago, a band called the Goo Goo Dolls sang, There is one poor child who saved the world, and there are ten million more who possibly could if we just stopped and said a prayer for them. In other words, the world is awash in a sea of little Jesuses, and if we could just do our part in raising them up right, all would be well. Even sometimes we Christian parents can slip into a similar way of thinking, more more of the tabula rasa variety. It's an evil world out there that's a threat to my innocent child. If I can somehow inculcate them from the world, my my child won't be drawn into the darkness. But that's a lie. Our children will be drawn into the darkness because the evil isn't just out there. It's in here. And the evil in us will come out. When we're kids, it comes out in selfishness or defiance or pride. But as we mature, the evil within us takes a more mature form too. It's far darker, far harder to manage, and with much further reaching consequences. And yet because the world has told us we are inherently good, because the world has told us so often that we are the path to the world's healings, healing, what do we do? when we're faced with the monster inside of us. There's no solution. No real solution. So we try to conjure some up. Here are three of the most common things that we we try to conjure up as solutions. Perhaps we get a hold of the world's checkboxes. The things that the world says, if you do these things, you're in the clear. You're a good person. Yes, there are dark desires within me, but it's okay because... I only buy fair trade coffee, check. I shovel my neighbor's driveway, check. And I coach Little League, check. So we can make it feel like we're good. Or, or, or maybe we try to distract ourselves. Give ourselves to making a name for ourselves through our career or our children, I might be battling some terrible things inside me, but my life's work will prove that my life had value, decency. Or maybe we'll just assume that the dark desires in us simply cannot be dark. I mean, if they arise from this good heart, how could they be anything but good? 
God might call these desires and actions sinful. But if I'm the one doing them, how could they be anything but good? But all of these kinds of solutions are not real solutions. They're cover-ups. They seek to paper over the real problem. They are cosmetic issues or cosmetic solutions to structural issues. Maybe you're listening to this sermon this morning and you're not convinced that you're a bad person. Yeah, I do bad things. But my nature's evil? Isn't that going a little too far? I want you to hear the words of a psychologist named Diane Lamberg. She says, examine your longings. Know what they are because they make you vulnerable to fulfillment in illicit places. I want to flesh that out a little bit through a little thought experiment. Take your deepest and most cherished, I'll call it carnal, longing. Whatever that is. Now imagine that you could act on that longing, have it fulfilled without any negative consequences, without any repercussions, maybe without anyone knowing. Are you sure you wouldn't? Sleep with that person? Are you sure you wouldn't steal that money? Are you sure you wouldn't use that relationship? Are you sure you wouldn't abandon that hard family member? Are you sure you wouldn't take that life? They don't think it's our inherent goodness that prevents us from going to those dark places. It's the societal pressures, the God-ordained governmental restraints, the feeling we'd let others down that keeps us from going to those direction, in those directions. Left to our own devices, without any of those external controls or breaks, we would fulfill our desires in dark and illicit places. It's why absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because someone reaches a point, when, when someone reaches a point where there is no check over them, he's free to follow his impulses wherever they take him. And it always turns out bad. So you might think that your good deeds, uh, they outweigh the bad. But that's only because there are so many external factors keeping you from doing bad and so many external pressures encouraging you to do good. The reality is, the sin that lurks within us is native to us. And give it an inch, it will take a mile. Hear me, it wants to master you it wants to dominate you. It wants to own you. 
And if not for a host of external checks, it would. So why is the baby crying? If she's crying because she's hungry, feed her. But if she's crying because she needs to be burped, feeding her won't help. You see where I'm going with this? The world has the wrong understanding of the problem and therefore offers the wrong solutions. If what's wrong with this world is that the inherent goodness within humanity is simply untapped, if that's what's wrong, then the solution is for somehow all of us to come together in one pan-world family holding hands and singing out the greatness of man and a great love fest. But if what's wrong with the world is something more inherent to humans, then the hand-holding will never, ever succeed. The war to end all wars won't be the last war even when the good guys win. We'll defeat racism only to find that we're still racist just in other ways. We'll overcome poverty in that village only to find we've unearthed other problems there. We'll cancel people who commit certain sins only to find that we ourselves need canceling. We'll outlaw abortion only to to discover that the human heart finds new ways to take advantage of the weak for their own gain. Now, that doesn't mean we don't seek to alleviate poverty. We do. We must. It doesn't mean we don't seek to end abortion or racism. We do. And we must. But if the real problem is here in the human heart, those kinds of solutions will never ultimately change anything. And more importantly... For you, you whose heart aches, you who know how sinful you are, despite how often the world has told you how good you are, for you, you who can see right through those messages meant to prop up your self-esteem and to make you love your wretched self just a little bit more, What? What can they do for you? What can they do for you whose heart still aches? The baby's still crying even though we keep feeding her. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, we have the diagnosis wrong. And that's why the hand-holding and the self-esteem building doesn't ultimately work. We need something far bigger We don't need cosmetic changes. We need structural changes. Or more precisely, we need a new nature. If the problem actually is that we are basically evil, then the solution can only be a change in the human heart. 
So Moses said in Deuteronomy, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Or listen to the prophet Ezekiel and what he said in Ezekiel 36. He wrote, I will, this is God's voice through him, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all the idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That, that is what we need. Heart surgery. We need a new heart. Ezekiel, tell me, where can I get that? Where can I go? Where can the world go to get these new hearts? Where can we go to have God's Spirit put inside of us? The Bible tells us the answer. Go to Jesus. We can go to Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And how can that be? Verse 21 tells us, because Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. What Jesus did on the cross not only canceled our sin, cleansed us, it also gave us the ability, or he gave us new hearts those who have faith in him are born anew. This is amazing news. And it's true. The colic can be cured. Our unexplained agony can be healed. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this glorious passage. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in the work of, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Anthropology matters. Get it wrong, and we're left papering over the deep flaws in our souls. Get it right, and we're free to run to Jesus, 
who can fix our flawed souls by making us new. New hearts. I've shared with you on a couple occasions my own father's dramatic conversion to Christ when I was 12 years old. That Christmas, our family didn't have the same money we had typically had because my dad had quit his job. So my, so my parents agreed to buy each other one small present. And the gift my mom gave my dad that Christmas, from my perspective, is still the most valuable possession my parents have. It was an ornament. An ornament of the Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz. Because my mom said she wanted to remember the year that God gave my dad a new heart. That's what our God has done for us through Jesus. I think about it. If we're all basically good, then then Jesus is just a, a good example. One child that saved the world, and there's 10 million more that possibly could. Ho hum, man is exalted, God's glory is stolen. But if we understand humans as we are, natural born rebels against God with natures that cling to evil, then the good news of Jesus and what he did on the cross is everything for us. We can run to Jesus and we can receive the gift of a new heart. And it's not cosmetic change. It's real change. And then, and only then, are our tears wiped away and the crying of our souls stopped. Let's pray. God, may your word shape our minds, but more importantly for the souls that are aching, that know their need, may the the true and better solution afforded by the scriptures take root. In Christ's name, amen.